Well, good morning, everyone. As Jana mentioned, my name is Dave Bast. I'm uh, an occasional preacher and teacher here at Fifth, a member of Fifth uh, for 33 years. Um, great to see some familiar faces again on this special day. And uh, that, that really was the high point. Lizzie's standing here. It sent me back to a 14-year-old me doing that in front of Bethany Reformed Church here in Grand Rapids. So Lizzie, always remember this, you have publicly confessed your faith in Christ. Nothing can change that. Uh, she's gonna come back in a moment to read the scripture, but before she does that, I'd like to say a little bit about today, about the day of Pentecost, sometimes commonly called the birthday of the church, but it's not the birthday of the church. We're reformed folk and we have this thing called a catechism <laughs> which helps us kind of navigate the Bible, find our way through and organize a, a lot of what's said and listen to what our catechism says about the church, how it defines the church. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God through his spirit and word out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. So the church goes back to Adam. And the church will go forward until the moment Christ's return, uh, moment of Christ's return, and then it will be complete. Um, it's a community. We are a community. And uh, praise God for that as we uh, celebrate this particular community today. But then what is Pentecost about? What, what it, it is a celebration. You can see the decorations. Pentecost if it's not the birthday of the church, is the birthday of the church's mission. The purpose for which Jesus poured out his spirit upon his people. And uh, to understand that better, we wanna listen uh, today. So come on up, Lizzie. Lizzie's not done. She has to do one more thing in front of everybody. <laughs> we wanna listen to the opening verses of the book of Acts where Jesus explains this to his followers. Our scripture today is from Acts, verses 1, 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, 
But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, Luke tells us a couple of interesting things in, this, in these opening verses. Uh, he points out that this is volume two of a two-part set that he's written, volume one being the Gospel of Luke, also addressed to this figure called Theophilus, who may have been a real person, a Gentile by the sound of the name, but may have been an idealized figure that Luke has in mind as he does his research and writes his gospel in the book of Acts. Theophilus means friend of God. Uh, And he, he opens by reminding Theophilus that in book one, interesting phrase, he says he described all that Jesus began to do uh, in the Gospels uh, and to teach, all that he began to do. The implication is that what follows in volume two are not the acts of the apostles, as they're sometimes called, only superficially that, they are the acts of the risen Jesus. He continues to do and to teach. He does so through the persons of his followers as they are empowered by his spirit. So a a proper, though cumbersome title to this second book would be the acts of the risen Lord Jesus performed through his followers in the power of his spirit. Pretty cool. And as we'll see at the end today, it's an open-ended book. Hasn't closed yet. So Jesus appears to his followers during this uh, kind of strange 40-day period after Easter. And uh, Luke says he appeared to them with many convincing proofs, which suggests to me they, they weren't persuaded right away. They took some convincing and also that eventually he was successful. He finally did hammer it home to them that he was really alive. It really happened. As we like to say around here, uh, our faith is based on historical events. If they happened, they change everything. If they didn't happen, let's skip the worship and just have a party. Many convincing proofs. And then this key verse, I think, verse eight, here it is again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that actually, uh, in one sense, is a table of contents of the book of Acts. Uh, because that's how the the story unfolds. First in Jerusalem and its environs, and then there's a brief jump to Samaria in chapter eight, and then eventually the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It's also an agenda for any congregation uh, that claims to be authentically Christian. Our witness is here and there and ultimately there. That's why we have missionaries. 
So I'm going to preach today not uh, precisely about Pentecost or the Holy Spirit. I'm going to preach about mission because here it is in Acts 1 verse 8. First, the dynamic of mission. Where does the power come from? That's the word Jesus uses. You will receive power. Dunamis in Greek, dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. The power is the power of the Spirit. And it's a power that can enable us to step out of ourselves, out of our comfort zone, uh, to be ambassadors for Christ. Nowhere, I think, is this more obvious than in the person of Peter. I, I, I just want you to remember and focus on the character of Peter because he's the one, we saw the story. Let's bring up the uh, Acts 2 passage. I won't read it because we, um, we heard it uh, kind of and saw it illustrated, but skip ahead to a few more verses. Uh, a few more. Uh, a few more. Um, how is it that each of us hears in our native language, next one, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own native language. See, the crucial thing about Pentecost isn't the languages. That's remarkable. I've always said I wish I were a Pentecostal in that sense. In a way, I have been, because I preach the gospel in Persian. I've preached the gospel in several African languages. I've preached the gospel uh, in Arabic. It's just that I had an interpreter who... Uh, so we still do that. We just use means, uh, human means, human instrumentality. But the key thing isn't the tongues of fire it isn't the phenomena of Pentecost. The key thing is the message. We hear them declaring the mighty acts of God is what the crowd literally said. God's mighty acts, what were those? They were the cross and the empty tomb. Those were the mighty acts of God. And that's what the apostles began to declare, the whole church really, 120 of them. And Peter supremely stood up probably in the temple square, the only place large enough for a crowd of thousands to gather. Peter, remember Peter? Remember what he did on Thursday night before Jesus was crucified? That was six weeks ago. Pentecost is Greek for 50. Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, came 50 days after Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover. So one night, Peter is afraid by the question of a servant girl and forced to deny Jesus, he felt, lest he be, have attention drawn to himself. Six weeks later, he stands up in front of many of the very people who crucified Jesus, and he said, and this is the theme of his sermon in the rest of Acts 2, you can read it. Uh, Jesus was a, a, a man attested by God, sent from God. You killed him. God raised him. We are witnesses. 
That was the gist of his sermon. And 3,000 were converted by the power of the Spirit. What transformed Peter? What event had the power to turn him from a coward into a preacher? Um, I, I love a line by a British New Testament scholar uh, named C.F.D. Moole who says words to this effect. If the existence of the early church, an undeniable historical fact, rips a great hole in history the size and shape of the resurrection of Jesus, with what does the secular historian propose to stop it up? How do you explain that? How do you explain what happened to Peter? So the dynamic, the dynamic is the power of the spirit. The message of the church's mission, the content of our mission, you shall be my witnesses, Jesus said, which means uh, in one sense, yeah, my witnesses, the witnesses who belong to me. It's, it's a possessive, it could be read that way. You're my witnesses. But it also, I think, primarily is objective. You will be witnesses to me. The message that you're to proclaim to the world is all about me. It's about those mighty acts of God. The gospel is all about what Jesus did and what it means, plus an appeal. Come to Jesus. You know, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Paul uh, defined it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, event plus meaning, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. Uh, attesting to the reality of his resurrection. Event plus meaning, that's gospel. You've probably heard, it's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, the old quote, go everywhere and preach the gospel to all, if necessary, use words. Apparently he never actually said that. <laughs> the fact is, yeah, I'm all for the proclamation of a life, a life of love and service. We, I think that's our primary witness here as a, as a body here locally. Um, but you can't really witness to Jesus without words because you have to say what happened <laughs> and you have to say what it means. And then you have to invite people. I mean, Paul, in his last great public speech, I'll refer to it again in just a moment, after articulating the gospel, turns to King Agrippa in all his pomp and he says, Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And Agrippa, what? You want me to become a Christian, really? Yes, yes, Paul says. I wish you were. We wish everyone was. Not just for their sake, not certainly for our sake, but for his sake. Because Jesus will not have received the glory due his name until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So yeah, that's the content. Uh, that's what we're called to witness to. Now just a word 
if I may, about the scope. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Missions, you know, we used to have mission conferences when I was a kid. I bet Fifth did. Um, and that's neither here nor there, but whether we have a conference or not, we need to continually hold in mind the idea that the gospel is for everyone. And if it is not for everyone, it can't really be for anyone. See, that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. We're not, we're not just saying, well, he's my Lord, and you can have a different Lord, that's okay, or you worship God in your way. And we're saying he's Lord. That, too, is an objective claim. Uh, one of the great missionary scholars of the 20th century was a man named Leslie Newbigin. And in an address near the end of his life, he wrote these words. The contemporary embarrassment about the missionary movement is not, as we like to think, evidence that we've become more humble. It is, I fear, much more clearly evidence of a shift in belief. It is evidence that we are less ready to affirm the uniqueness, the centrality, the decisiveness of Jesus Christ as universal Lord and Savior. The way by following whom the world is to find its true goal, the truth by which every other claim of truth is to be tested, the life in whom alone life in its fullness is to be found. So if, if you read the book of Acts, you discover that the shift to the ends of the earth centers on one remarkable person. You've heard of him too. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And something happened to him when he was on the road to Damascus uh, that turned his life upside down. Let's just take a look at the story real quickly from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The thought struck me a few weeks ago when John was preaching from John 16, and he read the first verses of that. John 16, one says, Jesus warns his disciples, the time will come when those who put you out of, your, out of the synagogue will think that they're serving God. That was Saul in a nutshell. He was convinced he was serving God by hunting down these heretics. So what happened? He asked the leader of the synagogue for letters to, uh, to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. (laughs) What happened to Saul in that moment? I mean, one minute he's riding high, literally. He's on his way to Damascus. He's a young man on the rise. His career is headed straight this way as a Pharisee, as a rabbi. Maybe he had thoughts that someday he'd replace his beloved professor Gamaliel as the chief rabbi of, and teacher of Israel. The next minute, he's shaken, he's blind, he's helpless, he's weak, he's led by the hand, he can't eat or drink. His whole life thrown into utter confusion. And in that moment, Saul was forced first to reevaluate his view of Jesus. He must have been buying into the party line that Jesus was a, a false messiah, uh, even a blasphemer who claimed to be equal to God. He, got what he deserved, away with him. We don't know whether Saul witnessed the crucifixion, but he was in Jerusalem about that time. And now, as the light flashes around him, Saul knows he is in the presence of God. That light was no sunburst. That was the light of the glory of God, the same light that filled the tabernacle and the temple, the same light that so... Uh, shown on Moses that when he came out from meeting God, he had to put a veil over his face so, so that he didn't spook people. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Who, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. Saul had to Saul had to revise his whole view of the church. He thought they were misguided fanatics. He thought they were traitors to the God of Israel. He thought he was doing God's service by locking them up or putting them to death, get rid of them. And all of a sudden, they're the body of Christ. Christ is so intimately united with his followers that to strike one of them is to strike him? You mean, in persecuting people, I'm actually attacking God? And finally, Saul had to reevaluate his whole life purpose. What was he all about, anyway? What was he living for? What were his ambitions? To rise in the standing of his superiors in the temple to become a great rabbi. You know, this story from Acts 9 is in some ways the key to the whole book. It's told no less than three times. It's described in Acts 9. Later on, uh, in Acts 25 and 26, Paul will retell that story in his own words twice in front of Roman authorities, second time King Agrippa as well. So, 
Of all the stories in the early church that Luke could have recounted in the limits of the scroll he had to fill, three times this story appears. I think because it not only shows how the gospel transformed the apostle to the Gentiles and eventually made its way to Rome, I think because it's a paradigm for all of us. The last time Paul told the story, he expanded on what Jesus said to him on the road. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and the, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, that's the paradigm. We may not see the light, we may not fall down in the road, but we need to have our eyes opened by the power of the Spirit to the reality of the person of Jesus, and we need to turn from darkness to light, from the power of evil to the kingdom of God, and so receive forgiveness of sins and inclusion into the church, the community, from the beginning of the world to its end. God's people called to belong to him and to one another. So let me close with our three basic questions, may I? How is God getting your attention? You know what else Jesus said to Paul as Paul reported it the final time? Saul, why are you persecuted? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And it's a powerful image. You know what a goad is. A goad was a sharp pointed stick that they used to drive an animal that was recalcitrant that wasn't willing to go where it had to go. So Saul's conversion wasn't something totally out of the blue. God had been prodding him, maybe through his conscience, maybe when he saw Stephen die. You know, they put their coats at his feet. He watched their clothes while they stoned Stephen to death for his witness to Jesus. Maybe something about that when Stephen knelt and with his last breath asked God to forgive his murderers. Maybe that stuck in Paul's memory. So how is God goading you (laughs) to turn, to open your eyes to the reality of who Jesus actually is? Whatever you may have thought about him. What is God saying to you? Is it time to get up and profess your faith publicly? What are you going to do about it? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.